0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Emrich. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Larry Suedro, Sam Adams, co-authors of the book, Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing, How to Live Your Values and Achieve Your Financial Goals with ESG, SRI, and Impact Investing. Larry serves as the Director of Research for the Buckingham Family of Financial Services and is previously published author many times over. And Sam is CEO of Vert Asset Management, a dedicated sustainable investment firm. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure,
1: John.
0: Congratulations on writing a book that's both informative and balanced on a subject that can be emotionally charged for some folks. Sam, what was your educational and career path that led you to founding Vert?
2: Oh, uh, yeah, the big question, right? <laughs> Why we we here? Um, well, I uh, ended up, uh, I was a philosophy major at the University of Colorado Boulder, which is uh, a, a a way of saying I was going to be unemployed for a while. And so uh, <laughs> I was a ski bum and a climbing bum. So I actually have spent a lot of time in the mountains, uh, grew up skiing. So I seen climate change up uh, close and personal. But my career path was in financial services. And I worked at Dimensional Fund Advisors, a large fund manager, um, for a long time, for about 20 years. And so I had these kind of two parts to my personality, climber and skier, you know, mountaineer and capitalist. And they weren't really reconcilable for a while. But I did learn about companies changing the ways they do things to a more circular economy, uh, figuring out ways to transition to low carbon sources of energy. Uh, And then ESG investing came along in the mid 2000s. And I Asked some hard questions. I'm sure we're going to get into those about whether it's a real investment strategy, what the performance is, does it have impact? And when I answered those satisfactorily to myself, I said, this is what I want to do full time. Uh, And so left uh, that very lucrative and a wonderful uh, job at Dimensional to start Vert Asset Management, really to help financial advisors and individual investors uh, shift more of their money to sustainable investing.
0: And, and DFA has come up multiple times already on, on my podcast. Larry, among your many books, you wrote one that was a guide to a winning investment strategy. How does an ESG allocation typically fit into an individual's investment strategy in your experience at your firm? Is it a percentage of the total or for a lot of people, is it kind of all or nothing?
1: Um, I, I would answer it this way, that the ESG movement, really the way to think about it. I would view it as sort of a hockey stick, which really only began to gain real momentum in around 2017, 18, and then in 19, it really exploded. Um, And so we have actually had very little demand from our clients, and we're a $65 billion firm. I would say just a few percent of our investment dollars are allocated specifically within ESG, type of uh, guideline from the investor. Now, what I noticed was this big trend coming. We're seeing in the demand mutual funds being created. Very importantly, for the first time, you had a ton of academic literature focusing on it. The literature often follows the demand for product and trying to figure out what are the impact on the risk and rewards of portfolios. So I decided we ought to have a book uh, about this so we could educate our clients about the pros and cons of ESG investing so they could make intelligent decisions. Uh, And I began writing a lot of papers on the subject, writing up dozens of academic papers. And then uh, I said, Joe, we've got to turn this into a book. And my knowledge is on the academic research showing the impact on risk and returns, and also importantly on the impact uh, in sustainable investors were having on uh, companies themselves. But I didn't have the background on the whole history of the movement. So I turned to my good friend, Sam, who I'd known for a long time at Dimensional, and I knew he was big into this movement. So I asked if he'd Uh, join me and co-author the book combining our skill sets and that's how we ended up uh, working together brilliant
0: and one more for you sam does vert allocate to esg or sustainable funds to outside advisors or do you do the allocation at the security level yourself
2: yeah we run a mutual fund which is an esg in public real estate so we buy publicly listed real estate investment trusts, and we prioritize the ones that are committed to sustainability. So we're doing the ESG research and the security selection within the portfolio, and we leave it to the job of the investor, the advisor to say, how much do I have allocated to real estate in my you know, equity bond real estate uh, portfolio mix? Um, and how much do I want in sustainability within that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and at Buckingham, the way we do it is if clients want to combine living their values with their investments, we help them try to achieve both of those goals. And we use either the funds of Dimensional, uh, which uses academic research to try to enhance the returns of sustainable portfolios, uh, or we can build individually tailored portfolios. Using separately managed accounts, and there we have three good options: dimensional, imperial, and parametric. And we do use uh, those three as well. So there are two ways to get at. And Sam, maybe just touch on the chapter in the book on implementation. What we did there.
2: Yeah, we put a a, a how-to guide. Um, It's a long chapter on, you know, how to take your, your, most of the principles you adhere to in your existing investment strategy, you know, get a risk capacity and tolerance and define your asset allocation. And then how do you implement that with ESG or SRI mutual funds and ETFs? Um, and what the differences are and what you need to look out for and then we also have in the back of the book um, some illustrations of different types of portfolios investors might want to look at if they're focused on index funds if they're focused on factor tilted funds like the dimensional ones if they're focused more on shareholder engagement those types of things
0: yeah and, and the book is that th- thorough it really is and Another bit of magic the book performs is helping readers understand some of the terms we've already used, the alphabet soup that is SRI, ESG, impact investing and sustainable investing. Can you just because you almost can't even go to the next level without just a a basic understanding of what those are. And uh, and what they're not. That'd be yeah. great.
2: With that hockey stick that Larry was talking about when all the uh, the financial services industry started to get behind this um, is great because there's more product and more investment offers op- opportunities available. But no one is thinking from the same hem sheet. Or, uh, and so all the words are used interchangeably. So setting out a, a set of definitions is critical. We call the whole field sustainable investing. And we say there's thousands of ways to invest within that. But there's three main categories, ESG, SRI, and impact. And that's why they're on the front cover of the book. Uh, SRI is the oldest one. That goes back hundreds of years, thousands of years. And it's an investor who wants to invest for total return, but they have some no-go areas. They have a problem with alcohol or tobacco or gambling or guns or abortion or whatever it is. And so they say, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever diversification or even potential return there because I just can't have that stuff in my portfolio. And so a lot of people's idea around sustainable investing is colored by SRI. They think that that's what it is. But in 2005, the UN defined ESG investing for the first time, environmental, social, and governance investing. And this is different. Instead of asking the investor what they care about, what's important to them, you ask the companies what's important to them. You say, what's your environmental footprint? Are you consuming lots of natural resources that might become scarce? Are you producing lots of pollution that you could get some regulatory fines for? Uh, And what's your social uh, footprint, if you will? How are you treating your employees? Uh, Do you have some uh, strife there? Or do you uh, have good relations with your suppliers and your, your customers? Um, And so this is a risk-based analysis, right, of the companies and what's most material to their bottom line through these additional risk lenses of environmental, social, and governance. And so that's more like akin to conventional investing with an extra layer rather than tuning it to your individual values. And then the third category is very different. Impact investing is mostly private companies or private opportunities where You're investing for a specific problem that you want to solve. And so I like to kind of call it a a for-profit version of philanthropy. I want more women and girls to be educated in sub-Saharan Africa, so I'm going to fund this company that has a novel way of scaling out educational opportunities for women, right? Uh, Rather than donating money, I'm going to put it in a for-profit enterprise because sometimes those scale better. Uh, so those three are the different types, ESG, SRI, and impact. And you can immediately see how different they are in application. An ESG strategy you can do with regular mutual funds and ETFs, right? SRI, you might need some customization. So you might need some a uh, separately managed account. And impact investing is often in the realm off of the public markets. So very different.
0: Yeah, and, and we talked earlier Larry, about my early involvement with Iroquois Valley Farms. And one of my great takeaways was to have impact, capital I impact, there's nothing better than that venture capital or private equity investment. I'll confess, ESG is kind of um, grabbed onto primacy in the investing vernacular in this space, but that was a a great differentiation. I appreciate it. And I'll, I'll apologize in advance for jumping back and forth or screwing up those terms as they go the other great thing you did was you create this framework of breaking down the three sources from sustainable investing into financial societal and and personal let's talk about financial returns first if i looked at this book as kind of a meta study i'd conclude a couple of things one is that esg halo raises stock prices and lowers cost of capital which is a great thing for that individual company and may make higher esg scores attractive to other companies Leading to you know greater impact for investors. However, once that halo is in place, if I understand the book correctly, it results in lower equity returns going forward. Do I have that directionally correct?
1: Yeah, I think a good way for your listeners, uh, someone who's not an expert in finance, to think about it is think about the say the dot com companies in nineteen ninety five. Uh, they had a certain expected return uh and certain risks then that became very popular what economists would call a curse of popularity uh that bid up their prices without affecting the cash flows generated by the companies and ultimately their true valuation so as the valuations were going up investors were realizing capital gains and unfortunately, investors like to chase returns and that leads to them even more money coming in and it bidding up prices, lowering the returns in the future and eventually bubbles burst. Uh, so with, in this case, it's a, not quite the same effect because good ESG companies obviously have earnings uh, as well, uh, but you don't affect their, stock, uh, their earnings by buying their stock. You also don't affect their earnings by selling their stock. You have to remember that all stocks are owned by somebody. So you don't have an impact and deprive the company of capital uh, by not buying their stock, but you do change their cost of that capital. If enough investors favor a stock, uh, let's say you have two companies, a green and a brown, They each earn ten dollars, and they're both trading at a hundred, a PE of ten. If more money comes out of the brown stocks, goes into the green, the PE goes up to fifteen. It's now selling at one fifty, but it's still earning ten dollars. Your expected return now is seven percent or so. And the other stock goes, you know, from uh, you know from hundred down to eighty. And now it's only got an 8 PE and the expected return is 12 and a half. And so that's the way to think about it. Cash flows going into favored good scoring companies can drive up the prices in the short term, providing capital gains in that short term until that equilibrium is reached. Um And the reverse is true for brown companies. Now, what we do need to make sure people understand as well is this. If a lot of people screen out stocks, like in the old SRI days, they screened out the trinity of sin companies, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, might add pornography uh, as well, uh, Those screening out of those companies led to sin stocks, as we show in the book, outperforming the market by about 3% a year. That's that cost of capital impact basically playing out. So think about what what can happen. And it's really illustrated in a wonderful paper called Dynamic Equilibrium that looked at the three-year period 2018 through 2020. And that was when that hockey stick of cash flows really exploded. And they looked at it and said, let's say there's no impact on valuations from these cash flows coming in. The brown stocks would have outperformed by about two or 3%. However, the cash flows were so big, it actually resulted in the green stocks outperforming over that three year period by 7%. In effect, I, what I called it was a 10% greenium. So now you're getting a premium because of that. But it's now going forward, you have those lower expected returns there. But you clearly are affecting the company's behavior because everyone uh, who's a corporate CFO or executive wants to have lower cost of their debt, wants to have a higher P.E. multiple. So they're going to try to change behaviors so they can achieve that. And so you're having a positive impact uh, on corporate behavior. And we have a whole chapter dedicated to that particular subject. So hopefully that clears up. You have these conflicting forces going on. Expected returns to brown stocks should be higher, but if there's enough cash flows coming in, uh, green can outperform until we get that new equilibrium. And Sam and I kind of think we're probably around the fourth inning of a nine inning game here. There's still a long way to go, probably about globally 40% or so of money is invested with some kind of uh, sustainable strategy. And the surveys are finding that by say the next 15 years or so that number is gonna be in the 80 to 90%. So we think there's a reasonable chance investors will have their cake and be able to eat it too because of the cash flow effect. But all crystal balls are cloudy. We can't predict that.
0: Yeah. And you you alluded to it with your internet stock story from the 90s and came right out and, and talked about one of the questions I had, putting on my active manager hat that's been off for 10 years, which is, well, for it to have gotten to a premium there was a period of time when it didn't have it and it, and it gets one. And is is that an o- uh, opportunity for active managers in this space to try to add a little bit of return? And everyone's familiar with DFA's history in academia. And now you've explained, Sam, that your roots are uh, focused, uh, not your roots, but your current focus is on, in the real estate space. But <clears throat> do you see that opportunity? Or are people trying to take advantage of that in a positive way to say, hey, this company's scores are rising. The management team is saying all the right things and it doesn't have the premium in it yet, but three years from now it should. I'm gonna buy ABC stock.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll just go and then turn it over to Sam real quick here. There was an academic paper that looked at exactly that issue and said uh but let's look at what happens to companies whose ESG scores are rising and their stock returns go up for the very logical reason, they're able now to be included in portfolios that were screened out before. So you're getting this ESG momentum. uh, And the academic evidence on momentum is it's everywhere. Uh, It even explains factor returns. (laughs) Uh, Factors tend to do better when they have positive momentum. So very clearly, You know, this is having an effect. Corporations are observing it. They're getting better scores. That leads to more cash flows. Their stock prices tend to do relatively better.
2: Well, I'll speak from personal experience in running our ESG uh, fund, the Global Sustainable Real Estate Fund. Um, You know, you get this ESG data, and I'm not an active manager, right? I come from the other school of, of thinking, but i'm looking at it i'm saying does this information help me at all and unfortunately it doesn't it's just as hard as before you you know you definitely see some advantages that the sustainable companies have they have lower utility costs because they're more energy efficient they have less employee turnover costs they have all these benefits okay but the major factors of stock returns in the short term. You know, just wash those out. So you'll say, okay, well, this company is one of the best retail uh, real estate companies in the world, but <laughs> retail got crushed in COVID, right? So, you, you know, um, you, you, we like to think that over the long term, these companies will be better set up. If you think about a lot of sustainability purchase decisions, it's I'm just changing the cash flows that I need. I have a big cap Eps up front. I need to spend some money to buy this new, more efficient uh, s- system, like, an a- like a heating and ventilation and air conditioning system. And I'll save money over the long term. Or I'm going to switch to renewable energies and flatten out my energy costs. So they'll be better set up for the long term. Um, but right? Does that give them lower expected returns because they're lower risk and safer companies going on in the future? So again, it's really hard to use ESG information, even though it's better information and more information to to create alpha as an active manager. I do think you can sort companies who are getting more prepared for the future and not, um, but whether that turns into alpha... Yeah, but Sam,
1: uh, just to jump on your point, while we don't know about the alpha, we do know with certainty, based on the data, that companies with better ESG scores are less risky. They're less subject to environmental lawsuits, frauds, consumer boycotts, uh, all kinds of issues. And the research shows that that very clearly, including empirical evidence during the COVID-19 crisis. Good scoring companies, ESG actually did better. I'll also add one other thing that Sam touched on, which is think about today, one of the big challenges for corporations is a place we've never been before in the US is history where we have 1.8 jobs openings for every uh, for every unemployed person. Uh, so we're in an incredibly tight labor market. And the research is showing, especially among the millennials now, that they wanna work for companies that are good ESG citizens. And so it's gonna be very hard to attract talent uh, unless you are a good scoring company. You won't be able to uh, 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 not only get talent, but keep it, because companies that uh, treat their employees well are more diverse, have better scores there, uh, and they end up with higher employee satisfaction and the research shows very clearly companies that have higher employee satisfaction are more profitable so you get this virtuous circle companies improving their behavior attracting people who are more motivated satisfied become more productive and make the company more profitable
0: yeah what a what a great um source of competition in the corporate world if that's how they're having to compete to be better uh, corporate citizens. And and thank you for referencing all those uh, different kinds of tail risk. That was one of the first things I remember before ESG came around in the 90s, where there were some businesses that were really good businesses, but management just couldn't get it right. And I got exhausted by the drumbeat of lawsuits from shareholders, from former employees, from partners, you know, regulatory uh, drumming, because they they weren't taking care of business themselves. And there's no question that has an impact on returns. I don't, I don't want to deal with that as an investor, you know, sit through that um, as a nod to. Sorry, go ahead.
1: You no, know, I was just going to add to your point. It's There's the old story about where there's one cockroach, there are a thousand. Uh, and what the evidence shows that companies who do have a tail risk event, whether it's a consumer boycott, lawsuit, environmental issue, there tends to be increases the risk of another one coming. So it's showing poor controls, if you will. And so that's a real issue. Employees don't want to work for companies (laughs) that have that. So this is really becoming a very important issue. And it's something we really emphasize in the book, how corporations are reacting and being forced to change or they will not be able to be competitive.
0: Right. Uh, I was going to say a nod to Burton Malkiel, who wrote the foreword to your book. Fees on the 40-act funds in this space are not necessarily low. Are they necessarily actively managed? Sam, have you seen a compelling way to do this passively and get fees down?
2: Yeah, you can do it passively. You can get fees down. But you have to really ask what you want from the fund manager, right? So uh, there's some really interesting differences between fund managers. Some, you might want to pay a little bit more for some extra ESG screening and research and really getting that um, uh, better definition of what's sustainable and what's not. Uh, You might want to pay more for shareholder engagement. Uh, You know, A mutual fund or a commingled vehicle, um, the fund manager is the one that's going to vote the proxies, is going to do shareholders, is going to reach out to companies like we do at Vert and encourage them to do better. Even though we're only investing in sustainability leaders, right? some of the companies aren't leading in all aspects. And we can say, hey, you could do a better job of being transparent about your climate risks Uh, or you could do a better job uh, with your employee engagement. And so we're reaching out to every company in the fund every year. Now, maybe that's not important to you and you'd want to have lower costs, but these are the types of things that we encourage investors to look at in the books. Like, what's your focus? Is it strength of ESG tilt? Uh, Is it the quality of the management in determining who's leaders and laggards? Is it the shareholder advocacy? Uh, and engagement, what What are the things that you want to? And so some people will say, I just want the cheapest ESG tilt that I can get. Some people will say, I want the manager to be pushing uh, it for positivity more. Uh, there's thankfully lots of options. With that hockey stick, we went from about 50 uh, ESG funds and ETFs to over 500 now. So there's lots of options.
1: Yeah, and I would just add, add this. Uh, One of the big benefits of the technology revolution is that it has become much easier to develop uh, and cheaper to run separately managed accounts. So for somebody who really wants to be specific, has very specific values and says, I want to screen these entire companies out uh, of my portfolio, You can build separately managed accounts. You no longer need tens of millions of dollars. Hundreds of thousands is enough. And the cost is going to be in the 25 to maybe 35, 40 basis points, uh, which is not really excessive, especially when you're trying to tailor a portfolio to your specific needs. So, uh, you know, a lot of those hurdles have uh, gone away
0: a uh, slightly heavier topic without rules and referees and otherwise good rugby match i always say could devolve into a survival of the fittest fight talk about the three challenges of capitalism you present in the book the shareholder primacy linear extraction and short time frames and are there any implementable fixes
2: yeah i mean the the short time frames we've been working on a long time larry and i in particular right exhorting investors to switch to a longer term horizon, not just because of the difficulties of picking what's gonna happen in the stock market over the short term. But what I witnessed, what I referenced before, if you have a three-year time horizon, say you're the CFO of a public company, and you say, I have to meet, or worse, you have to meet your numbers, your earnings numbers every quarter, you're really hamstrung in what you can do to set the company up for success in the future, right? But if you said, I have a five-year or 10-year time horizon, I can invest in plants and equipment and products and things that will save us money and will be more efficient going forward. So the longer term you get, the more these sustainable projects pencil out, right? Everyone switched to LED lights because that pencils out in a year, right? That's an easy win. Putting solar panels on the roof, that's three years. A geothermal system? That might be twenty years, right? But but you get more benefits the longer you go out, and so the long term perspective is necessary both at the company level and the investor uh, level. The linear approach is just the the linear extraction issue is just the fact that we live on a finite planet, right? And taking natural resources, making products, and then throwing them in the waste bin—what we call take-make-waste is a road to ecological <laughs> to planetary disaster. So circular business models are not only better for the planet, but better for the company, right? When you come up with a system where your inputs are your outputs and they just go around and around, right? That means you're not relying on natural resources and you don't have a waste problem. And so companies that are coming up with those circular business models um, are, again, like in the real estate space, taking a building like the Empire State Building, right? And giving it an energy retrofit 100 years after it was built. And now you've reduced the energy use of it 40% and it's a healthier building for uh, tenants. That means that building can continue being used for a long, lot more longer, right? Um, so that is the, the circular business model one. And then the shareholder, the stakeholder primacy or the shareholder primacy model, um, this one, uh, thankfully, I don't, it, it was a nice debate a couple of years ago, but everyone's recognized that with a tight labor market, you have to be good to your employees, right? Um, with more pressure from, uh, you know, um your, your customers to have uh, more sustainable products. You have to be uh, entering into dialogue with your customers about what they want. Uh, this is no longer, you know, ignore everything and send profits to the shareholders. To do that, you have to take into account the other stakeholders. The way to maximize profits is to consider all of your stakeholders. And so those three things uh, the stakeholder uh, privacy model now moving to, you know, moving to stakeholder from from uh, shareholder, the circular business models uh, and the long term time horizons. Hopefully we're making progress on those. Uh, it seems like we are.
0: Yeah, it's the, the time. Short time frame issue is, is almost cultural in this country. It extends beyond investing, which drives me crazy as well, because all the prevailing evidence points to the most successful investors in the world ignoring what happens next week, next month, next quarter, and, and benefiting from it. Time is your friend and time horizon matters.
2: Well, John, let me uh, give you an example that you're very familiar with, right? In the agricultural community, right? You can use pesticides and herbicides, and you can use um, uh, genetically modified seeds, and you can ramp up production in the short term. But after three or five years, your soil is so degraded that you've basically, you know, toasted that farm, right? Now, uh. A, a, a sustainable agricultural system might not have those highest yields in those three years, but you can do that forever. You can continue to grow of uh, food on that land forever. So that type of short-term to long-term thinking is absolutely critical.
0: Yeah, that was one of the, the great innovations of David Miller and Dr. Rivard at Iroquois Valley Farms was setting the lease rates to accommodate the transition uh, the three-year transition, when yields plummet initially because the soil's dead, and you're still selling—excuse <coughs> me—at conventional prices. But then year four, and year five, and year six, you're like, "Oh, I get it. This is what it's all about." And then once we figured that out, and farmers figured that out, farmers were flocking to Iroquois Valley Farms looking for more opportunities. Um, when I talked up front about the the book had being a, a balanced um, and, and honest. I was thinking about a lot of things, but one of them is this challenge of ratings that you address, how different agencies can rate the same company very differently. I imagine this is a challenge for many, including active mutual fund managers that I talk to who are trying to get their hands around what their ranking is in their portfolio. And they kind of say, I I don't know what to tell you. I I can't really draw any conclusions. What makes it so complicated? and, And is that fixable?
1: Yeah, I'll touch on it uh, to open. First of all, you have three categories here, and they're the sustainable. You have E, S, and G. So, one rater, and there are seven different ones, could say, We're going to look at the, say, seven categories under the E's, uh, which include impact on climate, for example. uh, And Then we'll look at the five categories on the S's, like number of women, minorities on the boards, pay gaps, things like that. And then we'll look at governance, how we treat shareholders, uh, et cetera. Uh, And they could say we're going to equal weight those three scores that are combined from each of those factors. Then you get a different rater who says, I'm going to put 80 percent of the weight on the environment and 10 percent on the others. So that creates a problem. And then even within say the S, how do you decide somebody is a good uh, corporate citizen? Do you look at the number of women or minorities on boards? Do you look at the number of offices in the company or managers? Do you look at pay gaps? Do you look at some combination of those? Those kinds of issues, everyone can decide on what's the metrics they're going to look at uh, and then even if you agree on the metric, someone decides to weight one differently. So I don't think we're really likely to ever get total agreement. Um, and it, it is a big problem. It's not like with bonds. where you have three different rating agencies, Moody's, Fitch, and S&P that dominate. But the correlation of their scores is like 99.5%. If you look at one and get a triple B, the odds are almost 100% others will be identical here you can have three different raters and they could be very different depending upon the scores and i'll use one other example to help your listeners you can look at say carbon emissions and say do we look at their scope what are called scope one emissions what goes into my product that i'm making Do you look at scope one and two, all the supply parts that come to me and I then make it or scope three, what it takes to even get it to the consumer. Uh, And so you could think about Amazon, someone if they look at scope one, they don't produce any, oh, they're great. But if you then look at scope three and you look at all their trucks driving around the neighborhoods and uh, polluting the air, maybe, then they could be viewed as a bad citizen. And there are no rules about, at least yet today, about who has their report scope one, two or three, although that appears likely to be changing. You have both the SEC uh, and the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board trying to address, at least get people to agree on what are the issues they're going to look at. But to me, the bottom line is this. What we are clearly getting is more transparency. And I think that trend towards more transparency and disclosure is going to increase. And that's what's really good. But I will add this. Differences in ratings create real problems and can lead to uh, bad conclusions when you look at the research, because two people could look at the same data over the same period, and they're using different raters, and they'll come up with different answers as to the risk and return characteristics of a portfolio. So you really have to dig deep down and hard to understand what is going on in these portfolios.
2: I'd like to um, give investors a, a guide around this with something they might already be familiar with, because it seems very, very confusing. Um, when you have a stock analyst firm, you know, like a like a brokerage firm that publishes a buy, hold, or sell rating on a company, right? Those analysts go and look at all kinds of data, all kinds of issues the company's facing, and say, "I'm going to call Coca-Cola a buy." And then another analyst, another brokerage firm down the road says, I've looked at all the data, I've talked to management, I'm going to call Coca-Cola a sell. We actually like that, right? We like the fact that there's differences of opinion. But for some reason, when an ESG, one ESG raider, when MSCI says Coca-Cola is a sustainable company and Sustainalytics says they're not that sustainable, we get upset. But it's the exact same process. Here's what we want to fix. So that I don't have a problem with that at all. It makes it, as Larry said, very hard for researchers to define what are green companies and what are brown companies when no one agrees. But that's like saying what are favored companies, what are unfavored companies. But what we do need to get standardization on is the data. It'd be nice if everybody reported their scope one emissions in the same way. It'd be nice if everyone, uh, for example, reported how much uh, water they're using in the same way. It'd be nice if everyone had some standardization around their diversity reporting. Then we could compare companies like for like. And right now it's really hard to do that. But those standards uh, are coming.
0: Thank you. And thank you for specifying in the book, the relationship between impact investing and private equity or venture capital, which we've already talked a little bit about. And that was a clear takeaway from my time at Iroquois Valley Farms was the power of impact increases in that direct investment, as opposed to, as you said, Larry, whether you buy a share or sell a share doesn't have much of a a change. What other forms of impact investing do you see besides that one in sustainable agriculture?
2: Oh, they're they're everywhere now. It's really one of the most exciting things that we've seen come out. Um, The you know, some of it really started in microfinance where providing loans and um financing to very, very poor people. Think about the impact your money can have. Your hundred dollars or thousand dollars, not that much, right? Could mean the world of difference for hundreds of people who only need a loan for ten dollars or a hundred dollars or something. So the multiplying effect of your money is incredibly powerful. Um and The only, I would say, thing that continues to disappoint me about impact investing as the opportunities grow is that it is hard still for regular investors to do. A lot of those investments require big investments like a million and up. You need to be a sophisticated or accredited investor. That's slowly changing. There's more and more platforms um, for crowdfunding and those types of things, but This is a really great way for investors to add some oomph to your portfolio. Like, I mean, you know, when you take your invested capital and you switch it from conventional investing to uh, ESG investing, you are positively influencing the world because you're joining a growing cohort of investors who are demanding better performance, sustainability performance from companies. Um, But that feels different than... You know, sending a couple thousand dollars to some poor village and they get to change their life livelihoods because of your uh, contribution. And so, that-
1: Sam, why don't you uh, talk about the your own example of how you helped change the world a little bit there with a few thousand dollars?
2: Well, this is this is where philanthropy, uh, where uh, impact, which I like to call a for-profit version of philanthropy, turns into philanthropy. Um, I used one of these crowdfunding sources to send a couple thousand dollars to a village in Peru that wanted to get their coffee beans certified organic. They already were organic, but they didn't have the certification. But if they got the certification, they could charge more money for their beans and get more uh, profits for their efforts. And so I did that. I sent the money and they... The company did, I mean, the the the, co-op at this village got the certification, started charging more for their beans, and they paid me back my loan within six months. It was really fast. Uh, And I felt really, really good about what I had uh, done for these people. But then the crowdfunding platform that I was using collapsed. And they said, would you like to contribute your money to our winding up costs or would you like us to send you a check? And so I contributed the the money to the winding up cost and my impact investment became a
1: philanthropic one.
0: That's a a brilliant and heartwarming story. Um, Yeah. Sam
1: even felt good, even though uh, he was now paying more for his coffee.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But the coffee tastes better, doesn't it? It It Um, The other side of the coin is the SEC has been looking into mutual fund greenwashing in this space. And it's a double shame that it exists because well-intentioned people aren't having the effect that they want to have. And for others, I'm guessing reading about it deters I'm sure future investors, because it creates cynicism. What can you tell us about the state of firms taking advantage of this movement without really doing what they say they're doing? Um, How bad is it and are, are we getting in front of it at all?
1: Well, it is a real problem because the mutual fund industry knows that this movement is huge. They're creating all kinds of products and what you're seeing is even XYZ Fund changing their name to XYZ Sustainable Fund uh, without changing their investment process at all. In fact, one paper found on average, their scores not only didn't improve, in some cases they got worse.
0: It's the dot com uh, thing all over again. Remember when people, regular yep. businesses, would just add dot com yeah. and whatever.
1: Yep, exactly. Uh, you know, so that is a problem. And like I said earlier, one way to address it is just to create your own SMA account uh, or you can rely on others to do the work. Uh, I think even if you look at MCI or Sustain Analytics or Morningstar, uh, they'll be able to spot that greenwashing. It'll show up in their Morningstar's global ratings over time, and you know those companies, you know, will lose capital. But it's a shame that it goes on. Uh, In my mind, that should be something the SEC should be pursuing vigorously and suing companies and charging big penalties when they don't see the behavior improving when they slap on an ESG. So that attorney generals of the states could do it as well. And I think that's an area that's likely to probably see some action taking place.
2: Yeah, you can go too far with that. The Europeans have tried to do that on categorization, categorizing mutual funds into, you know, what level of sustainability there are. Um, And you can go too far, probably better to have the research tools that the, you know, the, the financial services providers help you distinguish that, right? We never needed a rule. To tell us what was a true value company, a mutual fund strategy versus a fake value, you know, was really growth. Right. We we figured it out after a while. And so that's the way I prefer to it. But we're kind of in this difficult space. If you rewind the clock back, I don't know. It depends on who you are. Ten or fifteen years. Remember when food companies were slapping the world "natural" label on everything, Absolutely. and there wasn't yeah. natural anything natural about it, right? It was just. Um, and then we came up with an organic certification, and now there's certifications around, you know, fish friendly and 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 pasture raised and all this type of stuff, right? We need that to develop because right now it's the wild west right as larry said people just change the that brown thing to having a green name and leave it brown and and there you go right so
0: yeah pasture raised uh grass fed 100 uh, percent grass fed grass finished i mean I, that's how i eat so i i live that in the grocery store uh Every every day, but the
2: the tools are getting better, right? So I I, I the only time I, I go into like a place like Whole Foods and I'm just like I'll trust anything in the store, basically, right? And i like, I mean, I know not everything in there is pure as the driven snow, but I'm I'm okay. I'm not that fussed about it. But every once in a while, like around Thanksgiving or so, I'm, I'm like, okay, how sustainable am I going to make this turkey? Is you know, and they have these ratings from like you know all of those things. Like this turkey has been. Uh, you know, raised in a pen and this one has organic food and this one has been massaged and this one has friends and this one has a a support group. And like, you know, which one do you want? Um, And it goes from $10 a pound to like $100 a pound, right? You can have whatever you want.
0: They got got the copper, silver, gold badges above each piece of meat. And I'm taking my glasses off and getting right up against the glass to see what exactly – it is, But that is an important point that whether it's Whole Foods or Natural Grocer, uh, there are actually vendors out there trying to do the work for you. And if they build that credibility, whereas you said, Sam, I stop worrying about it uh, because I trust them, that's, uh, that helps grow demand. I think that gives um, consumers some some comfort.
2: And I think with the complexity of sustainable investing now, right? getting some guidance from somebody. Uh, if you have a financial advisor, that's great. Um, uh, there's some robo-advisors for that the, the can do it. But as Larry said, if you're more into really doing it, figuring out exactly what you like and don't like, then these separately managed your accounts are a solution as well. Um, I guess the, the takeaway is just don't believe what it says on the 10, right? You got to do a little bit right. of due diligence.
0: Do, do some work. Just, just one more. There, there's another big pool of money out there in the hands of BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, and I'm guessing a very large ESG manager. On the one hand, Larry Fink has a reputation for being concerned about climate change and having an influence on how all those shares are voted could be impactful. There's a lot of hand-wringing about that. But I, I think I saw somewhere in the book that the, that public image hasn't yet added up to a whole lot of, of impact. Yet from BlackRock, do I have that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, it's easy to 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 look at the biggest asset manager in the world and say, yeah, you're not <laughs> you're not doing it right. But I think Larry's letters that he writes to all companies that they invest in, which is you know tens of thousands of companies, and says, we're expecting you to do this now. And if you look at that pattern of letters, the ask keeps getting more aggressive every year. And so, yeah. There's a lot of people who want uh, BlackRock to do more in that area. Um, I want everybody to do more in that area so that doesn't distinguish them from anybody else. Um, but, you know, think about what you're asking for. If you're asking for a cheap ETF or mutual fund and you're trying to get the cost low as possible, you know, that's what you're going to get. If you want a more boutique manager that's pushing harder on these things, you're going to want to look for that. So you have options.
0: Yeah, there's a sustainable food analogy in there, I think, that we could have come up with in terms of what you pay and what you get. Yeah. Um,
2: I mean, we're modeling our company after Patagonia, right? They're not trying to have the cheapest clothes. They're going to have expensive clothes, but they're going to be really well uh, made and they're going to be sustainably sourced. And as you said before, John… You, you know you can trust that brand, right? You're saying I'm not. I don't need to go into the whole supply chain of this jacket because I know Patagonia's figured it out and is work and is doing the best they can. But they're very concerned about the performance of the jacket as well. And then you can go with, with what uh, you think is best.
1: Yeah,
0: high,
2: high credibility. Yeah. Before I let go ahead, yeah,
1: John. I think there's one other topic that's really important for your listeners before we wrap up here. Uh, A lot of people, uh, especially individuals, wanting to express very specific values, I think make a mistake in thinking about screening out some industries. And a lot of mutual funds look solely at how does this company score against the market? Uh, so you're going to find, for example, uh, any energy company that's producing oil is going to get a bad score, uh, on the east side of the ledger and you might therefore screen them out. However, I, the reason I believe it's a mistake is there, I think the much better way to look at this is to look at what is called the best in class or industry neutral, uh, Analogy: So you would score each of the companies in the energy space. Uh, and if you find that there are companies making significant investments to the transition to sustainable energy, while others are not, you should favor them because here's a great story. Probably I would bet almost none of your listeners know The companies that have the most green patent are the energy companies. So if you screen them out, you deprive them of capital, they then can't make investments in that transition. So we think a best-in-class approach is the way to go. Of course, somebody could say, I just don't want to invest in an energy company. That's fine. But Sam, maybe I think it's helpful if you tell that short story using total uh, the French company, as an example.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- to make this sustainability transition, we need all of companies and all of capitalism to make this switch to low carbon, right? And to uh, do all the other things we need in sustainability. Um, and so we can't just say goodbye to those oil and gas companies. We're going to need their technology and their experience not only to give us the oil and gas we need to get to the transition, but as Larry said, to to to, to fund the the... Um, The the patents to do this, for example, the uh, the energy company, the oil and gas company, uh, the French one total uh, is committed to switching to renewables. Right. They still have an oil and gas portfolio, but it would be imprudent to just, you know, cap those wells and turn them off. But they can use the profits from those to fund investments in renewables. My goal as a sustainable investor advocate is to get capitalism to push those companies who are dragging their feet All right. To start paying attention and start moving forward. Right. The leaders are out there in front. We're we're applauding them. We want to reward them with capital. But we also want the other guys to come along. Uh, And so I get just as excited about the test, about the, you know, Ford coming out with the electric F-150 as I do when Tesla comes out with the new Cybertruck. Right.
0: Right. Even though they
1: have the PE part. yeah, that's the approach that, for example, Dimensional, among other, takes in building their sustainable funds. They take a best-in-class uh, approach and don't screen out entire industries. And I just think that makes more logic. Even though you might want to hold your nose and I'm sorry, right, I'm buying an oil a company that produces oil and takes it out of the ground. You are helping the world become greener by giving them capital and advantaging them over the brown bad companies who aren't making those investments
0: well i'm so glad you chose this topic i was going to ask you do you have anything else you know you want to talk about and i skipped that question earlier in the interest of time it was wondering how esg rating agencies treat something like natural gas which is a fossil fuel but is cleaner than coal and if they run the business right uh, a microcosm of what you've just described in terms of reinvesting revenues from one side of the business uh, to a more sustainable side is the entire country of Norway, right? Which is endowed with massive amounts of oil and gas. And yet I think 70% of the cars in 2020 were EVs um, and the way they invest their tremendous sovereign wealth fund of $1.3 trillion. um, It's a, it's a great, you know, they get knocked for uh, that fund because they have that oil and gas business, but look what they're doing with the revenue, and look what they're doing with their entire economy. It's kind of a model for the world. you know. Um, there's so much more in the book, including A Fascinating History of Sustainable Investing, Larry, that you alluded to earlier, going back thousands of years, starting with religious roots that should not be skipped by readers. I really enjoyed it. Um, where else, Larry, can people follow what you're doing? You probably have three more books in the works, I'm guessing, basing, based on what a prolific writer are you, but where can they follow you? And then I'll ask Sam.
1: Yeah, so I write for three uh, websites, uh, advisor perspectives, uh, typically once a week, uh, sometimes a little bit more often. Um, um, And then I write for Alpha Architect. That's especially uh, for the geeks who are really into the factor investing and all the academic research. So I give them the more technical papers. And I also write for more call it average investor website called evidence-based investor that does a great job of bringing important issues uh, to the investing public's attention. I just wrote a piece about 529 plans, for example, how you have to be careful because some of them are really bad in terms of having high expenses because of bad behavior by the state governments who are taking that revenue and siphoning it off, spending it on their own endeavors instead of helping keep costs down for consumers. So I write for those three sites. Uh, You can find our book on Amazon, of course. Um, And uh, we always appreciate uh, if someone takes the time, reads the book, take a few minutes. If you enjoy it, write a review so others can share uh, and share that on Facebook to bring this important book, we think, to everybody's attention. And Sam and I, Both put our email addresses in the book. Uh, So we're always happy to answer any question uh, from readers. So feel free to shoot us a question if you have one.
2: And on... Sam, uh, how about you? On my side, we've got uh, the whole effort and mission and vision is to transition more capital to sustainability. So we've got a couple of uh, opportunities. We have the Vert Global Sustainable Real Estate Fund. um, That uh, is that... um, one of the only options you have for sustainability in public real estate right now. We also have an education and consulting business where we help financial advisors learn how to do more sustainable investing and wrestle with some of these issues. Um, And so vertasset.com is the website where you can get to uh, any of those uh, places. Uh, So contact me there. And you can follow me on LinkedIn if you want my interpretation of all the latest news and ESG uh, issues that are coming up. Um, I'll give you my take there.
0: Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. It is a a guide right now for anyone who has any questions about it. it, To the extent that questions can be answered today, they're answered in this book. I can't thank you both enough for your time. Have a great rest of the day.
2: Thanks, John. Thank you.